Please pray with me. Our glorious and heavenly Father, sovereign Lord, the God of this word, we come before you with spirits of hearts of contrition. We want to be humble before you this morning and be attentive to your word. We recognize and believe that as we focus on your word, that this word contains the very word of God. All of it is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training us in righteousness. I pray this morning, Lord, that as we were talking about being thankful, I pray that we would be exuberantly thankful for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ about which we will be speaking today, the cross of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Lord, help us to absorb your word this morning. I pray if there's anyone here today disheartened in any manner that the gospel of Jesus Christ would lift them up. I pray if there's anyone here today who needs Christ and needs to turn to him for salvation, that today would be that day. Lord, bless the preaching, the proclamation, and the hearing and application of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to be drawing attention to verse 16 today. Today is the part two sermon of 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, regarding the conduct and confession of the household of God. Last week, we focused on a number of exceptionally important elements concerning the conduct and confession of the church of God. And this is really a a, a monumental portion of scripture, really narrowed down to just a few verses, but one we really have to pause and deeply consider and not rush through too quickly. It's really a high point. It's pinnacle. This is, in my estimation, Mount Everest theology, especially as we are going to uncover verse 16 today and understand more about the nature and theology of the church and its confession, its doctrine, its theology of the church, this church about which we spoke extensively last week, is the only institution on earth that God is building. The only place on earth that is a heavenly preview or foretaste comprised of God's redeemed people living for the glory and truth of God. Last week we established with almost repetitive Force that the church belongs to no one else but to whom? God. It's his household. God is the one and only one, as Acts 20, 28 says, who shed his blood for the church. As Matthew 16 so bluntly says, Jesus said, he is the one who is building his church and the gates of Hades cannot come against it. God is the one who determines the truth, the theology, the doctrine of the church. He is the one who orders the conduct, establish how we as followers of him ought to live, behave, and act as his 
people, his redeemed people, his adopted children who belong to his family. Plus the church of the living God, not a dead God, but the living God is a church of truth. It's the support and pillar of the truth as 1 Timothy 3.15 says. And it's the truth, particularly the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ that the church must commonly hold to and confess and declare publicly. The church does not create truth. The church is not the source of truth in the sense that it comes up with the truth. Rather, the church upholds the truth. It maintains the truth that God himself has already established. And the church must defend the truth. The church must defend the truth. Why is that? Why is that? Because lethal, life-destroying, hell-sending false teachings and philosophies and myths and lies and deceptions threaten the church from within and without. Now, with that said, can the truth be destroyed? No. Can the church ultimately be destroyed? No. But false doctrine, false teaching, that which does not accord with the word of God can confuse, it can send unbelievers to hell, it can leave a devastating trail of unbelief and unholy living and lies about who God is and what the true gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy, who was pastoring at that time the church in Ephesus. And false doctrine was an insidious, a, a nefarious threat to the Ephesian church, as we will continue with next time in chapter 4 where Paul spends a little bit more time regarding the false teaching in the church that must be confronted and that must be, it must be put out. And nothing is more attacked in and outside of the church than the purity, the truth, and the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the main focus of our verse today, verse 16. From day one, the moment that Jesus came to earth as the God-man, did his purpose for coming and his per personhood, who he was, who he is, came under severe attack from multiple fronts. From the Jewish religious groups such as the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Herodians, and so forth, from jealous kings like King Herod who wanted Jesus and any male child under two years old to be put to death because he thought his kingdom was threatened. To demonic forces. To false disciples like Judas who wanted to sell in Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. To the Roman government like Pilate who decided his so-called fate. All of this very much influenced by their hatred of God, their love of their sin, and their influence 
by Satan. I mean, from the book of Acts to the time of this Ephesian church and other churches to the first centuries of the church, when Christ was attacked, when there needed to be councils and creeds to defend the veracity and the truthfulness of the gospel, to the time of the Reformation, when the gospel was mutilated by a false institution called the Roman Catholic Church, to the Enlightenment, when the word of God came under attack, to the rise of the cults in the 19th century, all the way until now, the gospel, the person and work of Christ, the Holy Scriptures have been under severe, threatening attack by lies and men who pervert the gospel, who pervert the word of truth, and by Satan, who hates God, Christ, and the truth with everything he's got. And today, in our own day and age, we see the gospel attacked on every front as well. We are not immune from attacks. They continue to threaten and undermine the gospel. Certain, certain nefarious philosophies, such as the social justice movement and CRT, a political infighting and thinking that politics is our savior. Uh, the word of faith, hocus pocus rubbish, seeks to destroy the gospel. The so-called prosperity gospel, the social gospel, which started to arise in the early 1900s. We have woke preachers and hip and cool preachers who want nothing other than to show themselves off rather than to show off the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have fake healers and fake prophets and a plethora of evangelical wonkiness that seems to pervade the evangelical landscape. And we have untold number of churches who have decided to confess anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we know, church, there's only one gospel. There is only one name under heaven by which man must be saved. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one Lord, one faith, one body, one God and Father, one spirit, one hope, one baptism. There is one way, one truth, and one life, and there is only one name under heaven by which anyone can come to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. As one person said, the world has many religions, it has but one gospel. And it's that gospel that must be confessed and declared by the church of Jesus Christ, which is who we are. And if the church does not confess Jesus Christ, let me ask, who will? Who will? Paul said in Galatians 1, right at the outset, anyone who preaches another gospel is to be anathematized, accursed, damned, judged. There's only one gospel that saves. There's only one gospel that makes sinners into new creatures and set apart unto God. The gospel is the only source of righteousness by which man can be declared righteous based on the righteousness of God. The gospel is the only source of forgiveness for all of our sins and the only means by which man can know God and receive eternal life. The gospel is the only thing that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
There is no other religion that can save. There is no other religion on this planet that can reconcile us to the one and only God. All other religions are damning lies and inventions of Satan himself, the chief liar and deceiver. It's the gospel that rescues sinners from the terrifying plight of being swept up into an eternity in hell as a just judgment from God for sin. It's only the gospel that can wash and cleanse us of all of our sins, whereby God will never remember our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's the glorious gospel that raises us to life anew and grants us a hope that is irrevocable and glorious. And it's the person of the gospel Jesus Christ, who is great and mighty and magnificent and worthy of all our praise and all of our confession. And therefore, the gospel must be protected, it must be defended, and it must be proclaimed by the church. The gospel, my friends, is our common confession. It's what saves us. It's what motivates and energizes godly living. It's our prized possession. It's our pearl of great value. See, if you had a safe at home filled with rubies and diamonds and gold and millions of dollars in cash, you would do everything in your strength to guard that safe from being broken into and those treasures being stolen. Well, how much more must we as the church of the living God, guard and uphold and support, maintain, preach, and adore the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Like the Philippians in Philippians 1.27, we are to contend together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul does this in verse 16 of our passage today. By relaying what most scholars think to be an ancient hymn or some kind of well-known creedal confession of that time. But whether that is true or not, whether it's a hymn or a confession, a creedal confession that was well-known, this portion of scripture, this singular verse, is a part of God's revelation to us. And because the church is, as we established last week, the household of God, the church must confess the truth of God. And this is the truth. This creed, this hymn, as you look at it, um, and before I delve into it, let's, let's go ahead and read it. And I just want to read verse 16, okay, before we get any further. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, as he continues in our passage, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And as you can see, it has some poetic elements to it. It almost sounds like it could be a song, a hymn, some kind of creed. And it's brief, is it not? It has easy-to-remember phrases and usages of the preposition in, 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 in just about every single line. Now, in terms of the structure of this hymn and, 
uh, how the structure delineates the meaning of it, there has been a plethora of debate about this, about the structure, the format, and so forth. But the meaning of this hymn, in my opinion, in my estimation, as I read this, is rather straightforward. And that is what we must focus on. Paul here is aiming at the heart of the church, why the church exists, the engine that drives the purpose of the church and its godliness, the jugular that keeps the church alive. And it's none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the main, the common confession, the primary proclamation, the dominant prevailing truth of the church. The, the church must agree on many, many, many doctrines. But if there is one that we must all agree on, it is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the mystery of godliness, as Paul calls it, this isn't a mystery, as Paul says at the top, great is the mystery. This isn't a mystery in the sense that we cannot understand the truths of the gospel. Yes, there are some transcendent aspects of theology that we cannot fully grasp here and now. We wrestle with certain, certain things in the Bible. We, we search and we, we dig and we study. But mystery here a word that Paul uses a number of times in his writings means something that was previously concealed, previously bound up, previously not fully known, but is now revealed. The things in the rest of verse 16 were a shadow, though prophesied in the Old Testament, but there was a shadowy aspect of them and they were not fully revealed until the coming of Jesus Christ, until the conception of the church when the apostles and the prophets proclaimed these truths because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, these truths in verse 16 are the mystery of godliness. Kind of a strange phrase. But it's not speaking only of the godliness and how we live and conduct ourselves as the church of God, but it deals with the source of godliness, the source of godliness, the ultimate reality of godliness, and that is Jesus Christ and his person, his work, his salvation. And this godliness, as Paul said, is great. In fact, that word in the Greek, when Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, that word in the Greek is mega, M-E-G-A. <laughs> Our own godliness as Christians would be non-existent if it wasn't for the godliness and the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's mega great. Why? Because Jesus is great. The gospel is great. In, in Ephesus, and we learn this in Acts chapter 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, the pagans would cry out and shout repeatedly, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And many think that Paul is combating that here by saying that it's actually not Artemis, but Jesus is great. He's greater. 
He's unmatched. He's superlative. He's sublimely better than every and every, any false deity that can be concocted. What Paul says at the top of verse 16 draws attention to what he's going to flesh out in the rest of verse 16. This confession, this mystery of godliness is great, it's profound, it's amazing, it's awe-inspiring. Now let me tell you, Paul is saying, about this greatness of our confession, this mystery of godliness. Let's endeavor to unlock this resplendent gospel theology. This is, this is gospel truth. This is a reminder to us as the church of what the gospel is. Uh, we need those constant reminders of what the gospel is. It's like what Peter wrote to those to whom he wrote, and he said, by way of reminder, I stir up your mind. And our minds, our hearts need to be stirred up to these resplendent and glorious truths concerning the gospel. Now, I didn't really have to be clever in terms of the outline here because Paul already gave me the outline. So as you see in the rest of verse 16, there are six marvelous truths, six marvelous truths regarding the nature of our confession so that you and I may grasp the greatness of Christ and then in turn proclaim the greatness of Christ, which is who is the mystery of of godliness. Six marvelous truths. Let's start with number one of our common confession of the church, of the gospel, and that is Christ appeared in the flesh. Christ appeared in the flesh. Paul writes very simply, he who was revealed in the flesh. Now this hymn about which Paul writes, begins where the gospel essentially begins. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, came in the flesh, came as a man. The second person of the Trinity, who has existed forever and ever and ever, took on a human body. He was, 100 is, 100% truly man and 100% truly God. Now, if you look at the first line here, depending on the translation you have, it says, he who was, he who was revealed in the flesh. Many take that first word in the Greek to say he who. Most of our translations say he who. Some translations, particularly if you have the King James Version, says God who was revealed in the flesh instead of he. And it seems like there's some confusion there and there's some different ways in which manuscripts translate that. Now, technically, I would say that he is preferred. Paul obviously is not talking about God the Father. God the Father did not come here in the flesh. The Son did. It was the son who became incarnate, who was born of a virgin, who became a man, who took on a body of his own and became a servant. And even if that word, if that was translated from the Greek to the word God, that further bolsters the truth that Jesus is God. 
and that he condescended to take on a garment of humanity. We're familiar with John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. This is one of the apostles writing, who beheld the glory of Jesus Christ as the God-man. We also know John chapter 1, verse 1, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Jesus Christ, embodied in flesh. He is God, and he came at a predetermined time, made by God, to come to earth as the Messiah, as a man, as one born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, ministered in Israel, died and was raised and was ascended in Jerusalem. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Such a magnificent verse says, but he, speaking of Christ, emptied himself. That doesn't mean he, he let go of any of his divine attributes. He was always God. He never gave up any of his divinity. But this is how he end, em, emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on something that he never had before. It says, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a confession that we have. And yet many false teachers back then and to this day say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He did not come as a man. And they would say the reason for that is because material things, physical, tangible things are evil. This was a common false teaching of Gnosticism, which was starting to rear its ugly head during this time in which Paul wrote. And they taught that the flesh, the physical human body, is evil. And there's no way, because of that, that God can embody something evil like human flesh. And this could have been one of the issues that Paul was tackling in Ephesus as he was writing to Timothy. But the thing is, what we have to understand or remind ourselves of is that although Jesus came in the flesh, he was born a man from a virgin, he was sinless. And there is nothing sinful about our flesh. God created us. Yes, sin dwells within us, but what God had created is very good. Jesus himself was sinless. He was the only sinless man ever to walk the earth, save for Adam, for who a brief amount of time was perfect until he disobeyed God and plunged the entire human race into sin and death. But Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, was totally and perfectly and entirely sinless, through and through. Never once did Christ sin in any matter. And his sinlessness was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Because, why? There needed to be a perfect 
sacrifice for our sin. It's his perfect righteousness and the fact that he obeyed the law perfectly, something you and I never could do. His righteousness was credited, imputed, granted to us. Meaning we are clothed in the righteousness of God, whereby when God looks upon you, he no longer sees you as a sinner worthy of judgment, but one who has been clothed with his son's righteousness. And thus, because of that, you can be in his presence. The righteous Christ died for the unrighteous us to bring us to God, as 1 Peter 3, verse 18 said. And thus, Jesus Christ needed to come to this fallen, cursed world as a perfect man who, again, as Peter said, committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth so that he might be the perfect substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us once and for all. He didn't need to be sacrificed over and over and over again. It was a once and done deal because Jesus Christ is perfect. He came in the flesh and he accomplished the work that he came to do. Awesome truth. Now, this brief phrase, he who was revealed in the flesh, also presupposes something else. The fact that Jesus existed before he came. This highlights the veracity of Christ's deity. He's always existed. He, he, he was not created, okay? You might have heard of some false religions out there that say that Jesus was created. But he was not created like some propagate, like the early Gnostics, like the, like the heretic Arius in the fourth century, or like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who say that Jesus was created. He was not just a human prophet like Islam teaches. No, Jesus is God in the flesh. And because he was human, because he is, he's of an eternal nature, as Hebrews 4, 17 and 18 says, he is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus understands your temptations because he was tempted, though yet he did not sin. He understands your battle with sin. He understands your weakness and because he came in the flesh, because he is of that nature, both God and man, you can run to him, to the throne of grace, and receive the help that you need in your time of need. Paul wants to affirm this great truth from the beginning here, that the incarnation that Jesus came in the flesh is indisputable, undeniable, irrefutable. It is a fact. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, how does this affect you and me? Well, God came to rescue you. He is not some distant God 
some aloof God who does not care about sinners in our plight. He came as a man while we were yet sinners. He died for us. He came into this corrupt, corrupt world and that if you repent and have faith in him, you will be saved. He will welcome you into his kingdom. I've heard so many people say, well, you know, if God would just appear before me in some kind of physical manifestation, then and only then will I believe. Have you heard that? Well, the thing is, friends, he did appear before us. And he became a man. And he stooped down to our level to show us God. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed deity by saying those things. The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. Otherwise, they would not have attempted to stone and crucify him. He appeared as man. But you must believe that he came in the flesh. This is critical to our confession. Anyone who denies that Christ came in the flesh is of the Antichrist. 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. Jesus appeared in the flesh. That's the number one truth of our confession. Number two truth of our confession is that Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. Now it's evident what the first line means. Jesus came in the flesh, right? That's not too difficult to understand. But the second line here can be a little tricky interpretively. It might not be the easiest to grasp. And most theologians have given us two options for what the meaning of this line entails, which both are essentially true. Uh, Jesus was vindicated. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean, of course, that Jesus was justified. That word there for vindicated can also mean justified. Um, he was not justified like you and I are justified. He didn't need to be declared righteous. He didn't need to be saved. He had no sin in order for him to be justified by faith. He never broke God's law. So that can't be it. Or the word spirit there, does that mean the Holy Spirit? Or is Paul referring to Jesus' spirit? Well, that's a little bit hard to tell. Is it capital S or lowercase s? Jesus does have a spirit, and there is obviously the Holy Spirit. So that's one challenging aspect. And then there's this Greek preposition there, in, or en in the Greek, which could mean either in or by. Jesus was vindicated in the spirit or by the spirit. And this is where it's a little challenging to tell. But either way, whatever juggling we do here interpretively, uh, we can be certain that Jesus was vindicated in the sense that he was proven to be God. While on earth, while he was on earth, many did not believe him. In fact, they despised him. 
They mocked him. They questioned him. They argued against him. They cursed him. And ultimately, they crucified him. Was Jesus the Son of God? That's the question. In fact, some of us sitting here might be asking that very question right now. Was Jesus whom he claimed himself to be, the Son of God? Is Jesus really who he claimed to be, Lord, Savior, the great I am? John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. The Jews knew what he was talking about there. That reflects back to Exodus where God revealed to himself, to Moses, as Yahweh, I am. Well, there are three ways that Jesus was vindicated to be who he truly was. And I believe the Holy Spirit had a great part in doing that, and Spirit here is capital S, the Holy Spirit. What are a few ways by which Jesus was vindicated? Number one, The Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to live a sinless life. Who here, raise your hand if you can claim today that you have never committed a sin. I see no hands. While most unbelievers, unbelievers, think they are good people going to heaven based on their good works, which is untrue, many will at least least admit that they make mistakes or that they're not perfect. But Jesus Christ He was sinless in mind, in thought, in action, and in word. No man who has ever graced this earth has ever been able to claim that except Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, verse 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? He said, Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, Jesus was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin. Christ was without blemish, was without spot. He was absolutely, entirely perfect. Number two, the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to perform many mighty miracles. These miracles were not to show off or be some kind of ostentatious display but they proved who he was, that Jesus is God. For no one but God can heal lepers, the blind, the deaf, instantly like God can. No one but God can raise the dead by calling out their name, Lazarus, come out from there like God can. No one can walk on water. No one can stop a storm with a word, like Jesus did. No one can feed multitudes with little food like God can. The miracles proved and validated Jesus as God. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit vindicated, and this is probably the most monumental and the grandest miracle, by raising Jesus from the dead. Not only was he raised, Jesus raised himself. John chapter 10 No one has the authority to take my life except me and to raise it up again. Romans 1, verse 4, Romans 1, verse 4 says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Next month, what are we celebrating? The resurrection. Jesus is alive. That proved the fact that he is God. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. And he was proven to be the Lord of the universe. And we as the church must reverence and worship him as the Lord of Lords. This is our confession. This is our proof that Jesus is God, a very God. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Number three truth of our confession as the church of the living God is that Jesus was seen by angels. Jesus was seen by angels. Now this might seem a little off or strange that this would be included in this hymn. We know that many people desire to see angels. Some have claimed to see angels or have been visited by an angel in their bedroom or something of that nature. Now, angels really do exist, right? There is a spiritual realm that is unseen to our eyes. Angels are heavenly beings who were created by God, who were created by Jesus Christ himself. They are devoted God to God. They witness creation. They witness the giving of the law. They will be there when Christ returns. They witnessed his birth, his life, his resurrection, his ascension. Angels are all over the pages of scripture. And Paul here is saying that Jesus was seen or better observed by angels. Not only was Jesus vindicated by the Holy Spirit, But heavenly creatures watched him closely. Hmm. He was a glorious spectacle for them. Just think about it. He was in heaven for eternity, and now he comes to earth as a man to save these human beings who have disobeyed against God. He was a spectacle to the angels. And as Hebrew 1 makes abundantly clear, Jesus is far superior to angels. Read chapter 1 of Hebrews sometime. And it's him, it's Christ that should be observed, worshipped, and adorned. Like I said, these angels were there at the announcement of his birth. Think of Luke chapter 2, when the angels visited the shepherds in the field, and they made that glorious pronouncement, glory to God in the highest. Today, Christ is born in Bethlehem, a savior for all men. The angels were proclaiming the gospel from the outset. They were there during his temptation, Luke 4, that they ministered to his needs. They were there at his resurrection when the stone was rolled away. They were there at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was removed from this earth and ascended and was taken away by a cloud and returned to his heavenly dwelling. They saw it all and it was awe-inspiring to them. And the point is this. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit and plus the angels, the holy creatures of heaven, also saw his birth, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, and they give validity to the work and person of Jesus Christ. Now, 
if angels give this much attention to Jesus Christ, ought we as the church of the living God to give the most attention to Jesus Christ and his gospel? The question must be asked, do you as a Christian, do you observe Christ? Do you study Christ? Is Christ the loveliest thing to you in your entire life? Do you worship him? Do you adore him? I mean, from the singing this morning, I would gather that the majority of you do. You came here today not to be uh, amazed by me. (laughs) I hope not. You came here to worship and adore and love and hear about Christ, the loveliest of them all. Let's observe and see Christ because he is our great confession. Now as we move on in this hymn, we have a few more here. We get to the hymn that talks about the work of Jesus Christ on the earth. Number four, truth of our great confession, is that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was proclaimed, declared, preached, heralded among the nations. I mean, we can certainly praise God for this truth, right? It's because of this truth that all of us are sitting here today because the gospel was preached to us. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations by people. Jesus could have stayed here and proclaimed the gospel, but he went up and he utilizes these earthen vessels that are filled with the treasures and glories of Christ, Christ in us, to proclaim to the world Jesus among the nations, the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. The gospel didn't stay cooped up in Israel. It reached to the farthest ends of the earth to you and me. It went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the furthest reaches of the earth as Acts 1 verse 8 says. Even the Old Testament in Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 49.6 says that I, God speaking here, will also make you, Jesus, a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Abrahamic covenant said that all families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed by what? By the Messiah, by his salvation. The gospel has reached and continues to reach peoples of every nation. The gospel is for whosoever will believe upon Jesus Christ for eternal life. Jesus has been proclaimed. He was even proclaimed when he was on earth when he sent the disciples out. He was proclaimed in Acts 8. I'm sorry, in all of Acts, not just Acts 8. This was his great commission. Go and preach the good news teaching everyone to obey my commandments, to be baptized all over, proclaim him, preach him. Is there anything more important for the church to do than to proclaim and preach and teach Jesus? We don't preach a religion, even though Christianity is a religion, but rather we preach a person, Christ, the Son of God. We preach the truth of Christ which I said at the beginning is high and holy theology. We preach about the salvation found in Christ alone. We don't just study about Jesus, which we do. 
We preach Jesus. Christianity has been and will always be a preaching religion. Are you proclaiming Christ? You don't need to be up here behind this pulpit to preach. Are you an ambassador of Christ? Are you a representative of Christ? In your workplace, where you go to school, to your children, on the streets, the highways, and the byways, is it your desire, even if you're an introverted, shy person, to tell, G- uh, to tell the world about Jesus? This was Paul's purpose in life. He was a herald, an apostle to the Gentiles. He did preach to the Jews because the Jews also need salvation in Jesus Christ. They need to come to a knowledge of their Messiah, but also to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, it says that Paul says, Jesus sent me to preach the gospel. It's how the gospel is made known not through necessarily drama or music or art. Not that those mediums are necessarily bad, but it's the foolishness of the message preached that God saves people. I love this story about Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers from England in the 20th century. It is, I think it was his first pastorate. He was called, and the church members were giving him a tour this was in Wales. And Martin Lloyd-Jones' whole ministry was about preaching the word. And when he got to this church, he noticed that there was a stage. And he asked them, what is that stage? And they told him, well, that's our drama stage. And they were excited to share that with him. And this is how we have been reaching people. And Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at them. And said, and they, they asked him, what do you think we should do with this drama stage? And Lloyd-Jones said, well, as far as I'm concerned, we can use the wood from the drama stage to heat the church during the winter. But let that sink in. It's because the preaching of the word of the gospel is the business of the church. In so many churches, the, the pulpit has been moved to the side. Or there is no pulpit. The reformers brought the pulpit back to the front and center of the church because it's the word of God that must be proclaimed. Because it's the word and the Holy Spirit working through the word that is the only means and force that can save a sinner. And, And it's the only thing that can help us as the church to grow in the godliness of Christ. Anytime there was a great revival, the Great Awakening, the Reformation, Acts chapter 1, all throughout Acts. Read Acts, every single chapter mentions the word of God. When there's a great revival, look closely because there's great preaching of the word. Christ was proclaimed. He was proclaimed back then and he's been proclaimed all over the world to this day. Must be our confession. We must be preaching people, telling people about The gospel, it's our priority, church. Number five, number five of our hymn, of this great confession of the church, and that is Jesus was believed on in the world. Jesus was believed on in the world. Now this is something noteworthy of our confession. Uh, Jesus is not only preached, 
Uh, The words of our proclamation aren't empty, hollow words. The ultimate goal of preaching is that ultimately God would be glorified, but that sinners would repent and have faith in God, that they would be born again, that the word of truth would be implanted in their hearts, as James says, and that they would be born again, that God would open up their hearts to be enlightened to his gospel. And he is the only one who can do it. That takes a load off of us. We are proclaimers, but we can't save anyone. Only God can. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, what? Believe. That should be our confession. We, we want people to believe. And God will honor that. Let's be praying people who pray for the world, who pray for Blaine, who pray for Coon Rapids, for Minnesota, for Minneapolis, for India, for Africa, for South America. Let's pray and send people to preach the gospel so that people might believe on Christ. Now, the gospel is exclusive. People hate that. But we must preach an exclusive gospel because there aren't multiple roads to salvation. There aren't many ways. There's only one way to Christ, to the Father, and that's through Christ. But God is not partial to just one nation. And this is where the gospel isn't exclusive in the sense that the gospel needs to be disseminated to the very ends of the earth. Our confession needs to be made known. I'd be remiss today if I did not ask you if you have believed in Christ today for salvation. Have you? What are you waiting for? Jesus is presenting himself through his word and is calling you, believe in me. Turn to me before it is too late. Believe on me. Trust in what I have done on the cross so that you might be saved. Now lastly, the final marvelous truth of our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Look at the last line in this glorious hymn of verse 16. Is this, Jesus was taken up in glory. Jesus was taken up in glory. Now this part of the hymn might seem a little bit chronologically out of order, especially if this line is speaking about the ascension of Jesus Christ, which most likely it is. But it seems odd that it would be placed after the hymns, after the part of the hymn that speaks about Jesus being preached and believed on in the world because most of that activity took place after his ascension. In either case, what matters here is not chronology, but Christology and the glorious exaltation of Christ, that he did not remain here on earth, that he did not remain on the cross, that he was exalted, he was resurrected, he was ascended, and where he is right now at the right hand of God claims and proves that he is the glorious risen Christ. He is at the right hand of the Father. 
Uh, this ascension that happened to Jesus was the last event that happened during Christ's earthly ministry when after 40 days of ministering on the earth after his resurrection, he literally ascended in his resurrected body back to the Father to sit at the right hand of God. And we see this at the end of Mark. We see this at the end of Luke. We see it in Acts 1. We see it in Hebrews 1.3. We see the ascension, the exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2 that Jesus has been given a name which is above every other name. And this ascension of Christ is an often forgotten element of our gospel proclamation. But it is critical because the ascension changes everything. It validates the glorious nature of Jesus Christ as the God-man. It validates the atoning work Christ did on the earth which has been accomplished it shows that Jesus is above all and his name is above all names and that Jesus has authority over the entire universe and will one day return to crush his enemies and establish his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. The ascension paved the way for God to send the Holy Spirit and give spiritual gifts to believers. The ascension proves to us that because we are united to Christ, we too will one day go to heaven where Christ is, amen? Christ, as John 14 said, is preparing a place for us. There's no way he could have done that unless he was ascended. Uh, the ascension informs us and allows us to go to our living, compassionate, great high priest, to the throne of grace in our time of need because Christ is alive. The ascension is a monumental part of the gospel that we cannot overlook. Christ is not dead. He was raised, he was ascended, he is the living God, and because of that, he also is the head of the church. Lord of lords, king of kings, the worthy lamb who was slain, the one for whom myriads and myriads of angels and saints worship and adore. Do we not have an amazing confession, church? Uh, does this stir you up in any way? This confession of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation, that's printed on the pages of our scripture? Christ and his gospel is the most glorious truth we can confess, preach, and believe. This is the great confession of the church. There is nothing more important to proclaim, nothing more awesome, nothing more lovely, nothing more beautiful, more glorious than the mystery of godliness, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. John Calvin, the great reformer in the 1500s, said this. He said, the gospel is the clear manifestation of the mystery of Christ. The whole gospel is contained in Christ. The gospel of Jesus is our message. It's our banner. It's what we should be all about. He is the truth that Grace Community Fellowship must proclaim, believe, confess, and adorn, not just by our words, but by the way we also live our lives in godliness, the way we conduct ourselves as the household of God. We ought to be all about Jesus Christ. 
And with that in mind, let's pray to him. Lord, what a phenomenal confession we have here. Not a confession of guilt for our sin in this section, but a confession of the greatness of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have these words embedded in the holy pages of Scripture, your holy word, which reminds us of the truth of the gospel and that it's Jesus Christ that the gospel is all about and we as the church must proclaim and herald and talk about and learn and study and observe and tell the world about because it's only Christ that saves I pray today, Lord, that if there's anyone hearing this message that needs Christ, Lord, that they would run to him and believe in him and recognize their sin, but see that and know that it's only Jesus that can wash away that sin. And Lord, may we as a church, Grace Community Fellowship, oh Lord, may we be about the business of knowing Christ in our daily walk in our fellowship together, in our Bible studies, in our men's and women's groups, in our evangelism, in everything, Lord. May it all be about Christ. And to that end, may you be glorified, Lord. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. If you would, can you please stand? And I would like to read a... uh, benediction to us from Romans 15. Uh, Romans 5, starting at verse 15, sorry, Romans 15, starting at verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me uh, that I may be rescued. That's the wrong one. Romans 16. (laughs) It's still good. We, we, We should still read it, you know. Romans 16, 25. Now to him, that sounds more like a benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. And we all say, amen. The Lord bless you and be with you and have a blessed day.